All right. I would like to pray with you and ask for God's blessing on this, and then we will uh, launch into this. Um, I just say before I start that you're more than welcome to ask questions as we go along. Um, I have prepared what I think is more than enough information for the next 45 minutes or so, but I would, the point of this, of course, is to engender understanding. So there's no point in running through information if at some point it's not clear to you what I mean. I would much rather pause and talk through it than just plug ahead, okay? So feel free. It's actually helped to me if you don't understand for you to raise your hand and to ask a question, okay? <clears throat> Let's pray and then we'll begin. Our Father, we are very grateful that we have your word. The book of Proverbs says that your word is truth. It is a light to our path. It is a guide to our way. And we need that infallible truth as we walk through our lives. We need it in our homes. We need it in our communities. We need it for our understanding of the world. And we pray that you would give your help as we now look at a specific passage of Scripture and as, at a topic that is certainly on our minds. We want to understand what your word says and what your intention long-term is for the nation of Israel. I do ask that what is said here would please you, that it would be according to your word, that it would not vary in one way or the other, and give us great wisdom as we learn from your word and from each other. Father, I pray that you would also place your spirit in the hearts of everyone who's listening, that you would give them wisdom to know what questions to ask, or even wisdom to know how to um, contest if there is something that I say that is not truth. And so we pray for your help as we study together, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I made 50 of these, of these um, lessons. Um, if there are people who don't have a lesson or can't see a lesson, if you can share, because I put 30, no, probably 35 out on the table and then I just handed out 20 more. So if you can't see one, please uh, help by showing somebody around you. It's not necessary that you have one because I'll just be talking through it, okay? So I hardly think that the topic needs a lot of introduction. The nation of Israel and what's happening in the Middle East is very much not only on our TV screens and on our computer screens, it's also very much on our minds. And the question that I wanted to ask with you, even more specifically then what should we think about Israel today is the question, what plans does God have for the nation of Israel in the future? That seemed like a more specific question than the one that I uh, posed earlier over the last couple of weeks. So just keep that question in mind, what plans does God have for the nation of Israel in the future that will help form our understanding about how we treat that nation of Israel? And I'm also, I also want you to know I'm going to treat this question biblically. There will be some other considerations at the end of this morning's lesson, but I want to work, as I say, from the inside out. I want to start with one passage of Scripture, work out from there, and then eventually at the end of the lesson address some questions um, that you might have that go beyond this passage and maybe even the Scriptures themselves. And the passage I want to start with is Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. So if you can turn there, I'm going to read that passage. And then I want to note, especially verse 26. The reason I've selected this passage is because I don't believe there's any other place in the Bible that speaks more clearly or poignantly about God's future intention for the, uh, for the Israelite people or for the Jews. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Now, some of the antecedents for the pronouns might be difficult to understand, but I'll walk through that, okay? So I want to give you, if you look at your sheet, sort of an understanding of this passage within its context of chapter 11, but also the book of Romans, and then redemptive history as a whole. And if you look at verse 26 specifically, it says, then all Israel will be saved. If I ask the question, what plans does God have for the nation of Israel in the future, Paul answers that by saying, there's coming a time when all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? That verse comes in a stretch that covers from chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. And the question is whether or not the promises toward Israel, the people of Israel, have failed. To appreciate that question, you have to go back through the first eight chapters of Romans, which of course come immediately before chapters 9 through 11. In that series of chapters, Paul makes it clear first that no one escapes the condemnation of God that we are all sinners. He says that's true for Gentiles as well as Jews. He also makes it clear in those eight chapters that there's only one hope for all those who are at enmity with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. He sets out in those chapters the singular mercy and grace of God shown in Jesus Christ. And immediately before chapter 9, at the end of chapter 8, he, he launches into what is one of the most beautiful sections, sections of Scripture, in my estimation, where he says, here's what you should know. For those who are far from God but brought into relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, he says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then 839 says, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And if you remember that section of chapter 8, he goes through a whole list of things that could separate us from the love of God. And the great capstone statement is nothing can do that. So if that is true, that God's promises never fail, remember the argument, everyone is a sinner. There's only hope in Jesus Christ. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise. Naturally, the question is going to be asked, well, how about that promise that was made to the Old Testament Israelites? If you've just said every promise of God comes to pass and we can base our lives on that, then how do we think about Israel? Because God made promises to them. Have those promises failed? To introduce that series of questions, Paul will have to answer, have the promises for the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, failed? If they have failed then how can we be confident that His promises to us will remain true? 
The answer obviously is we can't. Because if any promise of God has not come to pass, how do we know that the other promises of God are trustworthy? So if you look at the beginning of chapter 9, he begins by answering this question about the Israelites. And he proceeds through chapter 10, where in the last verse... Of chapter 10, he summarizes what comes before by saying, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Then in chapter 11, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By people, he means the Old Testament people, the Israelites. That's what he's been talking about in the, in the previous two chapters. And look at his answer. He says, By no means. There's not a stronger way to put that in the Greek New Testament. However you would want to explain that, absolutely not, no way, to the contrary, that's what Paul means. He says the promises of God to the Old Testament people have not failed. And then he explains two ways in chapter 11 that we can be confident his promises have not failed. First, In verses 1 through 24 of chapter 11, Paul tells his readers there was a good reason why the Israelites fell away from God and were taken into captivity. In other words, he's saying, think about the promise of God to the nation of Israel, to the people of the Jews, as having a purpose in my great redemptive plan. And what is that purpose? He says that through the rebellion of the Israelites... The great purpose of God would be fulfilled that the Gentiles would be grafted into the people of God. That grafting in fulfilled one of the greatest promises of the Old Testament given to Abraham that through him and his offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. That promise is repeated a number of times including in Genesis 22 verse 18. So that the first part of the answer to the question, has God's promises, have God's promises to the Israelites failed? Paul says, no, just think about it this way, that that the Israelites rejected my promises and were taken into captivity, served my purpose, which was that the Gentiles would be grafted in. So this grafting in was not in opposition to the promises of God made in the Old Testament, it was in fulfillment. Do you see that? Then secondly, he answers this question. How has God kept his promises to the Old Testament people of God? He answers it in a second way in chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. Paul addresses the specific question of the future of the Israelites. If in verses 1 through 24, he says, remember the history of the Israelites They rebelled against me, but I was using that for a purpose. Naturally, the question then becomes, well, how about the future of the Israelites? Those promises made in the Old Testament to the people of God, will we see them fulfilled in the future? Paul addresses that question in the following way. He says, but the ingrafting of the Gentiles is not the end of God's purposes. Instead, the turning of the Gentiles will serve to provoke the Israelites to jealousy and then the fullness 
of the Israelites will be saved. That's verse 26. So he's saying not only did verses in verses 1 through 24, God used the rejection of the Israelites for his purpose that the Gentiles would come, but now amazingly, God is going to use the Gentiles being engrafted to provoke the Israelites eventually to come to faith. So the engrafting of the Gentiles is not the end of God's purposes. Instead, the turning of the Gentiles will serve to provoke the Israelites to jealousy and her fullness will be saved. This is the climactic conclusion of Romans 9 through 11. And I read that verse again, verse 26. A partial hardening has happened to all Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Let me stop for a moment there and see if you're following what I'm saying up to this point. Next page. The question is, what does the fullness mean? That's the next page. Let's, let's go ahead. So what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Oh, there are more of those sheets. So if you still need a sheet, just raise your right hand or your left hand, or you can stand up. If you wig, wiggle your foot, nobody will see that. This is at the top of page two. So what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Does it mean that we can anticipate, I'm asking a series of questions there, does it mean we can anticipate the return of Jesus by judging the number of Israelites who turn to Jesus? Is that return of the Israelites a key indicator of that future? And should we view the nation of Israel as occupying a unique role in God's future redemptive work? Does the nation remain God's chosen people in the same sense as they were in the Old Testament? That's really a key question. So let me lay out for you three possible answers. I want to give you the best information that I can about this. So I've given you three possible answers, and I will explain to you first what those three possible answers are. And the first one has an A and a B. So if you want to divide it into four, you could. I just call the first one an A and a B. And then I want to give you what I believe to be true, and I'll give you reasons why I think one of those positions is right. First, what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? The first option, it's under small room and numeral three and then numeral three. There are some who take the all Israel to refer to Israel as a totality. That is, all Israel means that all Israel will be saved. Maybe not head for head, but in as much as you could say all, it will be all. There will be a massive turning to Jesus at some point by the Israelites. Those who take this view can be divided into two groups. First, some who take this, group, uh, some who take this view are premillennial dispensationalists. I'm not going to explain a lot about that, but I want you to be aware this would be the most common view among these Christians. They believe there is a sharp distance, uh, difference between the Old Testament people of God, that is Israel, and the New Testament people of God, which is the church. And if I can just pause there, the way this works is God worked in the Old Testament people and in the Old Testament. There's an interruption for a period of time where he works in the New Testament people called the church, and then he returns to working in the Old, he returns to the Old Testament people, the Israelites. 
The moment at which that occurs, there are some difference of opinion, but many would say, is at the rapture where the church is swept up into heaven and those who remain behind, there's a massive, massive turning of the Israelites to Jesus Christ at that point. So it's like God works in Israel, the church for a period of time, the church is swept up to heaven, and then he returns to give his attention to the Israelites, and many of them turn to Jesus. That would be a dispensational, premillennial reading of this text. The premillennial dispensationalists also tend to believe that the focus of God's care on the nation of Israel is critical. So we could think of how close, for example, the coming of Jesus is by judging whether or not the nation of Israel is turning to Jesus. And we can also say that there will be a massive turning of the nation of Israel to Jesus at some point when the rapture occurs. Okay, so that's position 1A. Here's position 1B. There are others beside premillennial dispensationalists who take a similar, although not the same, position. They believe all Israel does not refer to the nation of Israel. Excuse me. <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Does not refer to the nation of Israel, but to people of Israel wherever they are found. That's a key distinction. Those who believe this include well-known Reformed theologians, Charles Hodge and John Murray. This was also the dominant position of the Puritans. They said there's coming a time where there'll be a massive turn of the Israelites wherever they have found to Jesus. It doesn't mean that the nation of Israel itself will even exist. It doesn't mean that the nation of Israel itself will have a massive turning to Jesus, like the government will become Christian doesn't mean any of that. What it means simply when it says, and all Israel will be saved, is that we can expect a massive turning to the Jews, of the Jews toward Jesus at some point, wherever they are found. They believed, as I said, all Israel will be saved refers to a time in the future where ethnic Israelites will turn in mass to Jesus, although there is no particular promise to the nation of Israel as constituted today. So that's position 1A and 1B, okay? Here's position 2. Second, there are those who take all Israel to refer to the salvation of all the elect. So here, Israel is just another way to describe the elect. Both Jews and Gentiles, wherever they are across the history of the world and wherever they are in the world now. So when Paul says, and then all Israel will be saved, what he means simply is then all the elect will be saved. There is no reference to ethnic Jews in that statement. It's just Paul using shorthand to refer to the elect. This has been a minority opinion among Reformed folks, but it was the position of John Calvin. So that matters significantly. There is no particular promise for the Jews as an ethnic group, and still, instead Paul uses Israel when referring to all those who are elect, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Third, there are some who believe all Israel, so this is the third position. We had one A and B, two, and now three. The third is there are some who believe all Israel refers to the total number of the elect from among the people of the Israelites. So it's not all the elect Jews and Gentiles alike, it's simply the elect from the nation of Israel. 
According to this view, the fullness of Israel refers to the total number of all the elect Jews who constitute the remnant of believers gathered throughout the history of the church until the time of Jesus' return. There is in this view no expectation of a massive turning of Jews before Jesus returns. There will be Jewish people who have, are, and will believe in Jesus. And when the time comes that all of those whom God has called among the Jews believe in Jesus, then all Israel will be saved. So in other words, it reads this, it reads this phrase sort of by filling in words by saying, then all the elect of Israel will be saved. This was the view of many other Reformed theologians, including Herman Bavink, Anthony Hooksema, and Herman Ritterboss. If you're a Dutch theologian fan, you'll appreciate those names. Okay, let me pause again and see if you have any questions about those three views, if the views are clear. Uh, Hukama, not Hooksema. Hooksema is a PR theologian. This is Hukama who taught at Calvin Seminary for quite a number of years and has a book called The Bible in the Future. Yeah. Yep. So you're already starting in with the argument of which one you like, which is fine. We're going to go there in just a second. I just want to want to sort of have a sense of whether you understand the three positions. Do you have any questions about those three positions, what they mean? Do I see a hand? Oh, okay, sorry. No. The lost tribes, that's a whole different rabbit hole, but none of them refer to that. Good question. Anyone else? Okay, let's go on then to, okay, my own view. Now, the reason I put it that way is because there are, as you would note, with 1B, 2, and 3, differences of opinion among Reformed people about this question. Okay, so I'm going to give you my own view, and then you can be happy to debate it with me. Okay? My own view is that the second variety of the first of the three options is most consistent with the phrase within the context. So, what I'm calling 1B. That is that the promise, then all Israel will be saved, means at some point in the future there will be a massive turning of Jewish people to Jesus. It does not mean, however, there are particular promises attached to the nation of Israel. It just means there's the expectation somewhere in the future there will be a great turning of Jewish people to Jesus, provoked by the coming, of, uh, uh, the coming to faith of those who are Gentiles. Let me give you the reasons for that, okay? I'm going to work through these kind of slowly because they're a little bit dense and complicated, and please feel free to ask questions because I am not interested in just laying this out for you. I want you to be, you know, follow with me, okay? <clears throat> and if I can say, if your question you think sounds silly, please ask it anyway. We're friends here. Nobody's looking to make fun of you. I'm not going to make fun of you, okay? So please just ask. The first reason I take that position is because Paul uses Israel as referring to the ethnic Jews and not some variety of the elect 11 times in chapters 9 through 11. In every case, it refers to ethnic Jews, not the elect. Okay, so this is a very basic argument. <coughs> Excuse me again. 
It's using the word Israel in the same way that Paul does in the other 10 instances in these chapters. Yeah, I have, I have uh, cough drops and I have tea and I also have some virus. I feel bad when I cough because I know that really re- resonates in the, uh, in the sound system. So I'll try not to. Okay, second, I take this position, 1B, that all Israel refers to the Second, okay, to take all Israel to refer to the total number of the elect and not to ethnic Israel would be, in my view, anticlimactic to the argument. It's been building to a point, and then to say that all Israel in verse 26 simply means all the elect does not answer the question that Paul has been asking. It is anticlimactic. It brings it to no end and would be largely irrelevant to the argument Paul is making. If all Israel refers to the elect and not ethnic Israel, then the question of whether or not God's promises to the Old Testament people goes unanswered. The question has been, what does God mean when he asks these questions, what does God mean by these promises to the Old Testament Israelites? If, in fact, by the time he gets to the point of saying, and all Israel will be saved, he simply means the elect then we're still left with that question, well then how about the Old Testament people Israel and the promises made to them? What happens to those promises? Number three, the and so used at the beginning of verse 26 where it says, and so all Israel will be saved, refers to the means that God uses to bring about this massive turning of the Jews to Jesus. Paul describes the following sequence in which God will use a conversion of the Gentiles to Jesus to provoke a holy jealousy in the Jewish people. In their desire to have as the Gentiles do, the Jews will experience a massive uh, conversion to Jesus. And then finally, the main point of verse 25, comes right before verse 26, seems to be that the apostasy of the Israelites will come to an end, and afterward all Israel will be saved. This point would be undermined if all Israel referred to the elect rather than to ethnic Israelites. Now, here's the disadvantage of teaching a class like this, where we're talking about a difficult section of Scripture, and I willingly tell you it's a difficult section. That is, I am perfectly happy for you to raise questions and to debate this. We're in the arena of brothers and sisters in the Lord trying to figure it out. We're not in the arena of orthodoxy or heterodoxy. So the reason I noted that there are Reformed people who take 1B, two, and three, so that you would see, even among very, very good theologians, outstanding theologians, there have been differences of agreement about this question. So, I'm saying that to you to give you permission, if you needed any, to encourage you to say, feel free to try to work it out in your own mind. You should be convinced of what position you think is right, and I've just given you the four reasons why I'm convinced of this position. But feel free. Yes. So the question is, uh, in my view, do I see the rapture as the event that provokes the, uh, that provokes the jealousy? And the answer is no. In my view of the end times, the rapture is described by premillennialism is not that. So whatever 1A says about premillennial dispensationalism I do not hold that to be true. The point of similarity 
is only over the question of whether there will be a massive turning of Jewish people to Jesus. That's the point of agreement. How you get there is very different. Yes, sir. Okay, so yes, that's a good point. So there are other instances, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, where Israel is identified with others beside the ethnic Israelites of the Old Testament. That's true. My argument is within these three chapters, that's not true. And in fact, it would undermine the whole argument. So how do you answer the question that what happened to the promises to the Old Testament people by saying, oh, we're not talking about the Old Testament people anymore? That doesn't follow in my mind. Yes. That's right. So the question is, how does the promised land of the Old Testament then correlate or does it match the nation of Israel today, the the land, what we might call Palestine today? There's obviously overlap. So if you've ever taken one of these trips to the Holy Land, you've gone to places where I'm certain that Jesus walked. Okay? So are those promises of the Old Testament to give the Israelites their land, is that promise fulfilled in the nation of Israel? I'm going to hold off in answering that for just a moment, but it's a very good question. It's one of the most critical questions. Yes? Oh, about election? Okay. Because there he is arguing for election from a broader perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if I can just, I have every desire to be totally transparent with you, okay? The position I just laid out, I'm about 60% confident in. That's the truth. So if you would have gone back to my seminary days with me, I would not have taken Calvin's position. I would have taken the third position. And then some nice lady in our church brought this to my attention again, and others have asked about it, and I thought, okay, I need to go back and revisit that. And if you're interested in doing a deep dive into this, there are a number of very good books. And so I had to rethink this, and as I was thinking through it, I'm like, okay, This is a difficult question, and I'm like 60% of the way toward this conclusion. Just to be clear. Yes. Yes. great question. Yep, that's a great question, and that's where he is transitioning. In my view, he's transitioning from talking about all those who believe in Jesus Christ are saved through him. He's transitioning from that question to the question of the promises to the Israelites. So, 
the strongest argument for the third position comes from what you're raising. And that is, but Paul earlier in chapter 9 seems to fold in the Gentiles under a category of the children of Israel or God's children or whatever it is. So why couldn't he return to that in chapter 11? That's the strongest argument in my estimation for the third position. I just think this is a transition point in his argument so that what comes later is he's focusing specifically on ethnic Israelites rather than the category that he finds here. Because remember, in the big scope of the book, he starts with the broadest possible categories. That's everybody is a sinner. And there is no hope for anyone outside of Jesus Christ. So that's why it would make sense that he continue to have a broad view before he starts to narrow it. That's a great point, super point. And all those of you who really like the third position, dig deep into that question because that's a powerful argument for the third position. Yes. Yep. So the argument that uh, he was raising about Ephesians is that it would be redundant for Ephesians 1 to talk about election in the broadest possible possible, um, scope, and for him to repeat that argument here, here it seems like he's making a narrow argument. Yes. Yep, so I appreciate that. The question that's always debated around that, what you just said, which were really valid points, is are referring to ethnic Jews wherever they live or are there particular promises to the nation of Israel as constituted today in Palestine? That's where a big difference lies. So I'm going to move to that now on the bottom of page three. So what does this mean for the way that we view Israel today? Here's what I'm going to say, and again, this is a tricky question, so there are Christians who will disagree. First, there is no justification in my view in the Scriptures for viewing the nation of Israel as the key to the return of Jesus. It also does not seem consistent with the rest of the New Testament for us to expect a rapture in which the church is taken 
And then there is a massive turning of the Jews during a seven-year tribulation. That's a much longer conversation about millennial views. And I'm tipping my hand entirely. That could be a totally different conversation. So I am not premillennial. I don't think that's supported by Scripture. My millennial views are some version of post-ah, which are very like versions of the same thing. Whatever we might say about the nation of Israel as a whole, Romans 11.26 does not touch on the question of whether or not the nation of Israel as currently constituted has some special place in the future redemptive plan of God. I'm saying that's not the question being answered here. Second, we should be careful not to identify the promise made in Romans 11.26 with the currently constituted nation of Israel. I'm repeating that for this reason. That would be unnecessarily limiting. Here's the reason why. Only 41% of all Jews worldwide live in the nation of Israel. That happens to be exactly the same percentage as live in the United States. The other 18% are scattered in various nations across the world. I take the promise of Romans 11.26 to apply to that ethnic group wherever they are, which means we do not have to travel to the nation of Israel in order to be useful, if my reading of Romans 11.26 is right, in order to be useful to God in His great work that is promised here in this verse. The intention of Romans 11, as well as the New Testament as a whole, is not a reconstituted nation of Israel. Instead, it is the proclamation of the gospel and the turning of people to Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, I have to explain what that means. What that means is there are two different readings about what the New Testament says in regard to this question. I take the New Testament's goal to be the salvation of all people, all sorts of people, both Jews and Gentiles alike. That is its primary purpose. Where premillennial dispensationalism goes wrong is that it wants to focus on the question of the reconstituted nature of, of Israel. And I think that is not the question that is being asked by the New Testament. So that's where there is a significant difference. Let me explain to you why. The Bible teaches Jesus is the new, hear this, is the New Testament Israel. Now you might think, what does that mean? That means in some very real sense, all the hopes and expectations for the nation, for the nation of Israel, he does what they never could have done. He obeys God perfectly and keeps the law entirely and thereby unlocks all the promises and blessings that God said he would give. He then shares those blessings with all people, Jew or Gentile, who put their faith and trust in him. So let me go back to the question Shane asked about the land. In my understanding of the New Testament, the big question is not whether God is going to give us Palestine, but whether God is going to give us a recreated heavens and earth. The land promise is expanded in Jesus Christ. Not merely one location in a place in the world, but the entirety of the world as made right by Jesus Christ. And what was found in the Old Testament was anticipating its fulfillment in Jesus and the broadening of those promises in ways that are far more expansive. That is precisely the argument that Paul is making in Galatians 3 verse 16. He says, now listen to this. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings. Again, still quoting this passage. 
as referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ, says Paul. Why does he say that? He says that because the promises and the covenant responsibilities that Israelites failed are completed in Jesus Christ. That would always be impossible for the Israelite nation and for any people. Jesus Christ is the ultimate focus and referent for the promises of God to Israel. The promises do not land finally on a nation, but on a person. The glory and climax of God's redemptive purpose is not Israel in the land, but Christ in the cross. You'll see how those are two different ways to look at the New Testament. So third, to come back to the argument or generally, the Bible's view in general, how should we think about Israel today, is there is continuity between the Old and New Testaments. For that reason, we should reject the dispensational reading of Scripture as a whole, but particularly the way dispensationalism views a radical disconnect between Israel and the church. I'm throwing that in there, but it does have a huge impact in the way that we answer this question. Fourth, we should seek and pray for the conversion of Jews, just as we seek and pray for the conversion of all people to Jesus. If the conversion of the Jews in mass is prompted by the salvation of the Gentiles, then we view the work of God in both groups as laudatory and complementary. You see that? They go together. Fifth, we should be assured by the steadfastness of God's promises. None of those promises have or will fail. Every time we see people and masses of people come to faith in Jesus, we should remember that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? So I, we are, your kids are out there, and I want to answer one more set of, set of questions before I release you, okay? So I'm going to go a little bit faster. Should we care about what is happening to the people of Israel during the current war in the Middle East? That's a complimentary question. Do you see that? And the answer is definitively yes. And let me give you some reasons for that first. Because we believe human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, causing harm to other people without just reasons is inhumane and offensive to God. So when we see rape and murder, we should speak openly and clearly about these actions as evil. So that's why we care. Because all people are made in the image of God. Therefore, we want to honor everyone. And anything that is done contrary to the commandments of God is inhumane and unjust. Second, we should care about what's happening in the Middle East today because we care about the pursuit of freedom. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul says we should pray for those in authority over us because God's desires for the gospel of Christ to be heard. There are very few places in the world, in that part of the world, where there is freedom. And the nation of Israel, historically, is one of the rare places in the Middle East where there is this freedom. And for that reason, we should care. Third, because in the nation of Israel, there are believers in Jesus. There are approximately 185,000 Christians who live in the nation of Israel. We should pray for the protection of those who belong to our Savior, just as we pray for the protection of those in Sudan this morning. And finally, we should pray that God would use circumstances like the current war to move the Jews to a holy jealousy of the salvation that has come to the Gentiles. Maybe this is one of the ways he's doing exactly that. Okay, I've kept you a little past. You can feel free if there's something that is really pressing on in your heart and you want to ask, you can do that. Otherwise, your children are out there running around having a grand time. And I kind of feel glad for them and a little bit bad for you. 
So I'm going to pray with you, and then you can be dismissed. And if you have questions, you can follow up with me. I'll be up here. Um, I, I wish there would have been more time for questions, but we have limited time. So let's pray. It is our desire, Lord, that the purposes of God and Jesus Christ would come to pass, not our own will, not our own inclinations, but what you desire and what your word says. And again, I pray that what we have talked about would be true, whatever it is that is not true, that you would take it from our hearing, that we would not remember it. Instead, you'd replace it with what is good and true. Father, lead your people and help us to see that our gospel calling is to bring the news of Jesus Christ to every place in the world, Jew and Gentile alike. Father, would you grant this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.